Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Barbara Crossett, Senior Consulting Editor and Writer of Past Blue. This is Women's History Month. Barbara has a long journalism history. She joined the New York Times in 1973. Among the highlights of her time there was being chief correspondent in Southeast and South Asia and the Times Bureau Chief in the United Nations. She's won multiple awards, including one for her coverage of the assassination of India Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi in 1991 and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the UN Correspondents Association. She's also the author of several books and has taught journalism as well. Quoting from their website, Pass Blue is an independent women-led journalism site that closely covers the U.S.-U.N. relationship, women's issues, human rights, peacekeeping, and other urgent global matters. It holds U.N. membership to account through original in-depth reporting and analysis. Barbara, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me, Mark. I want to focus on both your career and your current job, and we'll go back and talk about your career later, but let's start with what you do now. Can you explain your day-to-day role with Pass Blue? Well, I, I, I write for them, and I help edit it. Just a quick background. Pass Blue was founded by two, two, the two of us. We're both former editors and writers at the New York Times. I retired, and she uh, retired. And we decided to keep going somehow. And the UN was a wide open field. I had just ended a long seven years as a UN correspondent and bureau chief. So we, we got together and started this little thing on, you know, the usual shoestring. And it, 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 it was intended to be international. We have readers all over the English speaking world and in some other places now. It's been hard work. But I, I write and I, what I do is I have to follow the news just as you do and read a lot of reports and things and kind of look for trends in international reporting, but also in UN affairs. And there's always some story going on, you know, somewhere in the world. I'm looking at some of your recent stories just to provide some examples. You shared news and a history lesson about the history of the United States contributions to the UN Population mm-hmm. Fund and the restoration of those funds in the early days of the Biden administration. You raised awareness to studies showing that the most effective national leaders during the pandemic have been women. You talked to the Secretary General of the Council of Women World Leaders for that. And you wrote about the President of Rwanda, who is the head of the African Union, and both his problematic past and the fact that there will be more women than men on the Union Commission. Can you walk us through one of those, what you reported and what your reporting entailed? Well, I could start at the end. Paul Kagame is president of Rwanda. He's, he, is, he was the president of the African Union, the equivalent of their parliament, but he is now their chief reformer. So the story started out by someone writing to me and saying, you know, you're missing what's happening in the African Union. They're promoting women right and left, and that this is worth a story. So, you know, as a foreign correspondent former, you, you want to be there, you know, you don't want to have to report this from a couple of, you know, thousand miles. But anyway, I thought, okay. And then I found out that while I was, while I was looking for more information about this, the two women who have been appointed to top jobs are flawlessly qualified. I should say that. One is a Rwandan, and therein hangs the story. 
But anyway, you know, it was true. But then I went on further. This is the, the situation when you're working in foreign affairs and you may not be in the country, but you don't have to be because pretty soon I got hooked up via the web with people who are saying, hold it a minute. Let me tell you what a terrible time it is to work as a woman in the African Union. And they cited reports, including one from the International Crisis Group and others about the corruption and the abuse. Abuse, I hate to use that word of women unless it really is abuse, but the downgrading of women and their, the, the harrowing experiences they have and uh, the nepotism, the, a lot of the stuff. So then I crossed that story with the fact that Paul Kagame is a reformer. And I've interviewed Paul Kagame in the past twice, once in Rwanda, once in New York. And he, he's, he has turned a country, you know, they had 800,000 people killed in the genocide. And he's turned the country around. And so he's got, he's got a lot of good publicity. But as he has built up Rwanda to a new country, and it was his people who were killed, by the way, he's a Tutsi. He also became more and more autocratic. So then I was into a different area, you know, what happened? And so I interviewed some authors and a very good uh, analyst of, of Africa generally, but also the, the AU in, in New York at the New School. You, you read the story, so you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, so everything came together in a funny way that a story became something different. And this plays into one of your other questions. I started out saying the African Union has, for the first time on its governing commission, more women than men, fair enough. And, and they're all in their fields qualified. There's no question of somebody's cousin or girlfriend or whatever getting a big job. Uh, but then uh, I have to segue into what the women who have worked there say, but the working environment is not good. <clears throat> and then I found out that the reforming was done by Kagame. I looked up his report, 2018, he did a report on the re reformation of the AU the reforming of the AU, the African Union, and it was, it was, it was, it was, what's the word I want? Institutional, you know, how many desks here and how many people there, and it completely ignored all these various accusations about the working environment being very bad. So then it turned into a story about how he got to where he is and why he's using the African Union to, to, to increase his presence in Africa. You know, Rwanda is about the size. I, I looked this up in Maryland. No. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it has not a whole, a lot of people, and it lost a million people over the, over the last couple of decades. But, but it, he's very, inter he's a very interesting man. So his idea was you, you, you work yourself up in the African Union, which he's done. All, almost all, all the major countries of Africa belong to this. And it's, you know, they, it's a little bit like the EU, only the AU deals with African affairs. So anyway, my reward for this was to get one gentle piece of hate mail from someone who said, this isn't the story. The story is how, how good women are doing in the African Union. So, you know, you're, you win or you lose, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, I understand where she came from because she was one of the people who said, you got to pay attention to how well they're treating women. And the, the top woman in the African Union now, the deputy commissioner of the whole place, which it's like the European Commission. In other words, these are very big jobs. She is a Rwandan and she is a Hutu Rwandan who stayed behind 
and risked staying with the Tutsis when they took over the country because the Hutu had killed all those 800,000 uh, people, most of them, you know, if that's, I'm making it easy. So, you know, that's, what, that's the classic problem sometimes with foreign coverage. I taught this kind of thing in Brazil, actually, on a night fellowship some years ago now, 10 years ago, that if they asked me to teach a course in, it was the biggest newspaper, Folha de São Paulo, a course in, if you can't have foreign correspondence, how do you cover the world? And this is the kind of thing that happens. And because of social media, because of the web generally, and the internet generally, and because of think tanks everywhere, it is so easy now to find a stream, a train of thought that you have to pay attention to. And I think it's, I think it's workable. And then you have all the technology that goes with it. So it's a lesson really for people who want to cover foreign news from a distance. It's not the best way to do it. But the cost of doing it and the danger to correspondence now is real. The world is huge, and the UN obviously is huge as well. How do you pick the stories that you want to pursue? I mean, I, you mentioned that you got a tip on that one, but I'm thinking that there are so many crises, you know, whether it's Yemen, Syria, Burma, Myanmar, there's so many things going on. How do you, how do you wind up picking what you do? <laughs> Well, there's another one recently. It didn't have my byline. It was written by someone called Nolene Heiser in Singapore. I have been able to use my UN contacts a lot from those years I was at the UN as the New York Times bureau chief. And I had before that seen a lot of the UN work and refugee work and other things when I was living abroad. So, you know, I carry one basket of contacts into the next and then I added to those. And Nolene was really a friend of mine. She was the first woman to run a UN a women's agency. Then she went out to the Pacific and she ran the whole Asia Pacific Economic Council. And she settled in Singapore. So I stay in touch with her. So she was willing to do me a strong memo just last week, the end of last week, I guess it was, on um, what the US is now going to call Burma again. Myanmar, the UN still calls it that. That's the general's term for it. Uh, so Noeline, because I knew her, I could write to her and say, you know, what can you say? And she sent me back a full one-page memo of terrific stuff. So we turned it into an article. So it's, it, it, I, so I, to answer your question and not just wander around it, I can, I know because of the news what's happening in Burma or Myanmar, whatever you want to call it. Aung San Suu Kyi always said we should call it Burma, but never, never mind right now. I knew what was happening, but I also wanted to find somebody who I trust to write an analysis of it and where's the way out. And Nolene did that by talking about what was happening, but also saying that the regional organization, and she knew this from having been in charge of the Asia Pacific for the UN, the regional organization called the Association of Southeast Asian Nations is not doing anything. And she thinks they should be sending a mediating team. It has to be a neighborhood thing. Burma, Burma Myanmar is a member of that. And China is pushing in and wanting to take, take over the issue. So, you know, it, that, that's one thing. And not everybody would have that same, you know, sort of series of jobs that I had that I was able to build up these contacts. But once you work around the UN, you, you meet wonderful people from all over the world. 
people who are in the governments there or in the, the NGOs, and that's another very important thing, or or people at the UN who who have come back from working in those places. So you know you have you you build up a, a group of people who you can trust to write something that is analytical but also fair. How do you? I, I'm a I'm a New York Times Washington Post reader avidly and have been with the New York Times for a long time. I I will acknowledge though that I tend to gloss over the international news. How do you? I don't want to say make someone care, but how do you get someone of I guess my age or Emmy's age, I mean, you'll hear from Emmy in a few minutes. Uh, how, do you, how do you get someone like that to care about the, the things that are going on within the United Nations? Well, here's the problem with the United Nations. It is not covered anymore. And this started happening in the 90s. It was depressing. Because American media, for the most part, it doesn't cover foreign news. It covers foreign places where the U.S. is involved. And the bigger the problem, the bigger the conflict, war, yay, then, you, then the correspondents flood the scene. But just to cover a place for its own sake, I, I know that correspondents always get frustrated by this. You know, someone who wrote about Iran years ago before it got to be, you know, under the Ayatollahs, he, he, he wrote, you know, he told me he had written memos after memo to the time saying, pay attention to what's happening in Iran. And, you know, what, what's it to us is always the answer. And, and that's one of the reasons. The other reason is that the United Nations has become a uh, tool in really basically anti-internationalism, anti-globalism, all that stuff. And so it's seen as a, you know, a foreign intrusion in, into, into the United States. And there have been several administrations starting with way back, well, George Bush, we can start with John Bolton. They had have, we have good ambassadors at the UN, but they can't, they can't get, a, get traction because, first of all, they work for the Secretary of State. So right there is a layer uh, between you and, and the news media. So I think it's that. And I think the big problem is the education system in the United States. I've written stuff about ge the, ge the geography teaching is finished in many schools. So people don't even know where places are. It becomes thematic. How are women doing in Tanzania and all that stuff? So, you know, it, it, it's, it's a complete just ignoring the UN unless and until the U.S. has to go there and ask for something uh, from the other countries. And that's been bad in the last four years, maybe a lot more than that. And that's what the challenge is. The, the piece that I wrote yet yesterday, Kamala Harris was at the UN, gave a very eloquent speech, and she wasn't at the UN, sorry, it was virtual, but you know what I mean. And, you know, and I, we looked today and nobody covered it but us. So, you know, and this was an attempt by the Biden people to say, we're back. We accept the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're going back in the Human Rights Council. In other words, they wiped the slate clean of Mike Pompeo. Can I ask one more before we uh, segue to talking about your career? What are you most proud of? What are you and the others who run the site most proud of regarding uh, your coverage of the United Nations for Pass Blue? Well, I think our, the, 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 the scope of the readers, as I said, they're, I think the second largest group of readers outside the U.S. and Europe and Canada, of course, is India and Southeast Asians. Yesterday when I listened to the endless reports from all the nations, this is how Kamala Harris got her turn, an awfully large majority spoke in English now. You know, this sends the French into a frenzy 
but it's true. And so that's another issue. There are many, many people now who learn English just to deal with websites and the internet because that's now become the international language. The, the question was, what are you most proud of regarding your site? Oh, yeah, the fact that we have this big international audience and the fact that we are beginning to get, we don't have money. We're, we're always running on, the Carnegie Corporation has helped us, but we're running on, you know, sort of empty tanks most of the time. Is that getting people with distinguished enough names and experience who write op-eds that don't have to get, they don't want to get paid for, they get a chance to make their point to an international audience. So it's, it's the fact that we've built up both the kind of people I talked about with Nolene Heiser in Singapore and also others who have been in the United Nations system and are often very critical of it, who are willing to write for us for very little money or nothing in order to, uh, in order to, to get their point out because the United Nations is extremely closed and it shuts down uh, all kinds of trouble within the organization. And so it whistleblowers is what we get. And so, you know, so those things, the fact that we have an audience of real people and all of them who understand international affairs. So, so that's, that's, that's the great success of Past Blue. And your, your time covering international news certainly goes back a ways. This, the, this podcast, we like to go back and look at stories from the past. And with you, there are quite a few to choose from. You started at the New York Times in 1973. And just to give a sampling, early in your career, I noticed theater and culture writing. I went through the archives, found you writing about Gregory Hines at the earliest point in his career. You covered and edited Westchester and New Jersey, then moved to international news. I found a story from 1982 where you were looking at trends and where we were headed with girls and women and working with computers. One week you're writing about uh, elephants in the Bronx Zoo. Uh, a little bit later than that, you're writing about the U.S. saying that Russians were withholding data on the size of maneuvers near Poland, and you're covering uh, Capitol Hill in 1981 and El Salvador and foreign policy stories. There's just a, a bevy of, of things to choose from here. What was the jump for you like into international reporting from some of the things that I was talking about? Well, what I don't know if I still have on my resume or not, but I worked, I started in daily journalism in, in, in London. My husband's British. And I, for three years, I was an editor at the Birmingham Post in the Midlands, where I met a lot of Indians and Pakistanis, by the way. I got the handle on. I had, I had never been to India then. When I came back to the States, I was hired by the Times. But, you know, I was also interviewed by other people who were looking for women who had some sense of foreign news, because as at the Birmingham Post, I was able to go to the Middle East. I, I, did, I did various reporting for them because it was a relatively small newspaper, but a good one. And, you know, you're asked about mentors. David Hopkinson was the name of the editor. And what he did is go to bat for me with the authorities who said, we have plenty of English journalists. We don't need one from America. And he said, I'll be the judge of you know, who's going to take this job. And that was it. So after three years, I was hired by the Times, and I've never forgotten David Hopkinson's role in that at the Times. And then these other crazy things I did, I got to get strange editors gave me things in all kinds of fields for we, for the weekend section and, and for, you know, for the, for, for the arts and so on. And I had been around Europe for years, and so I had some familiarity. But, you know, it was Arthur Gelb, the theater person who has written a lot 
about the theater. He died a couple of years ago. Arthur Gelb gave me all kinds of interesting assignments that really had nothing to do. I was on the foreign desk at the Times. And then in, I make this very short. And then in 19, from 73, in 1981, 80, I got a Fulbright Fellowship to go to India and teach journalism. Abe Rosenthal would give me only six months. They had given me a year, but that's okay. I had six months and I taught journalism in India. And then I got really hooked on India. So when I came back, I asked to go back as a correspondent and they had never had a woman there. So it was like, you're kidding. And because I also had to do Pakistan, Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, where they were butchering each other, Nepal, Bhutan, those, by the way, turned into books that I wrote later on. So when I came back to the States, I was, I went to Central America for a while because I spoke marginal Spanish and those Civil War years. I, you know, it's get, it's being in the right place at the right time. And I had good friends by that time among the editors at the Times because they were all ex-foreign correspondents except for Arthur Gelb. And, and so you asked about mentors. It was more conversational than that. It was like I mean, dumb things like where's the best restaurant in Kabul or, you know, some other thing like that, that I could just pick up information from them. And so that's, that's, that's really how it happened. And then from, when I came back from Central America off and on, I was going to be sent to the Caribbean Central America Bureau to start to open a bureau. It was, you know, there was a lot of conflict. But instead, I stayed another year and then I went to Asia and the rest, you know. That takes us to 1991 and the most prominent story you covered, the assassination of India's prime minister. It's not often that you get to talk to someone who was 30 feet away from uh, a world leader being killed. And I read your accounts of fleeing to safety. How did being at that event change, change you as a reporter? Uh, and backing up a bit, you know, that was scarier than that. I went with him in his car, his driver, from what was then Madras, now Chennai, out to these uh, places where he was doing political rallies. And he had just got out of his car and his uh, spokesman came up to the car and said to me, would, would I, cause I had another car of my own behind us. If, could you get out of his car? Cause somebody else wants to interview him. So I had to, I could talk to him all the way out to this event. He got out of the car and honest to God, it was just minutes he walked away and somebody detonated a bomb. And he, and so I think 19 or so people were killed instantly. But I was just far enough away. And his spokesman always tells people I saved his life because we were arguing about whether I was gonna go back in my car or back with Raji. But my biggest problem that night was with an indifferent telephone system. I had to, I had to write stories, uh, more than one. I went back to the hotel, I actually pushed heavy furniture against the door of my room because immediately people say it's the CIA, you know, it's, it's the usual problem. In fact, the American embassy told me to get out of the country. I didn't. And anyway, but a friend of mine, a good friend who was the editor of a very famous paper in Chennai, a Hindu, he had good contacts with the Tamil militants who killed Rajiv. He called me first and said it wasn't the boys. And then he called back later and he said, I was wrong. It was the boys. So I knew who had killed him, and with the boys being the Tamil insurgents. So, you know, I was, I was more dependent on a local journalist, however one of international reputation, than I was on anybody else. 
except I tried to turn on the television. They shut that down at midnight in India. The churches in Madras, it's a lot of Christians in the city, started ringing their bells, and uh, that gave everybody the steam that something awful had happened. So I turned on the TV, and in the last seconds of CNN, which was new in those days, I saw Daniel Patrick Moynihan say, he was a good man, past tense. And I knew for sure. We had tried to find the hospital where they had taken his remains. We had been driving all over the place before I had to come and write. So it didn't change, it, it didn't change my reporting or anything because I had, you know, I had seen death before and I had seen the most awful massacres in Sri Lanka. And I had seen, you know, things in Afghanistan and Pakistan and elsewhere. So the, the death, the, the violent death was not new. But the political story, the dynastic story of what happened to the Gandhi family and Nehru's, he was a grandchild, his grandchild became story in a way. So that I, it, it shifted to politics. And then, you know, the funeral, the Indians can, you know, do things hugely ceremonial. And that, that was one. And uh, believe it or not, the other one was Mother Teresa when she died. The military took over that funeral. It was that important. So, you know, it, it, was, in the, it was in the vein of, of writing about India and living there. When you've been in the business as long as you have, and in high-profile roles, working at the New York Times, covering international news, uh, covering the United Nations, and writing about things like you were talking about before, you're going to encounter your share of criticism. In the past, that's letters to the editor. Now, it, it shows up forever in a Google search or on Wikipedia. And we're not here to evaluate critiques of your work. There are other places for that. But I'm curious what you've learned from the experience of being publicly criticized. Well, the routine normally is uh, you go back and read what it is that you wrote that's got somebody in a twist. And, and if it's not, there was, I worked for a while with the chief news editor at the Times. So I used to run the paper on weekends, actually, for a little while. And he said, if, if it's not wrong, but somebody else sees it a different way, you know, just don't do anything. And if your facts are correct, if you if you could if you can to yourself, not publicly, justify. And you know, there are banks of editors in good places. There are fewer of them now because of social media. That's a bad thing. So a lot of things are said, as everyone knows, from the last four years that are not true. And and if there's no backup, you know, no editor. But you know, it, it's to go back on what you've written and see if there's anything in there that could possibly mis be mistaken for an untrue fact. And if and if it's from your own reporting, justifiable or not justifiable so much as provable that you have some evidence, evidential is the word I want, then no worry. And I don't I never responded. Certain people I would respond to. Most websites, including Pass Blue, have a space for comments at the end of an article. So let the, I, I always said to Dulcie Leinbach, my partner there, let just, just write to them and say, write back, because she's the publisher, write back and say, why don't you frame your complaint or your, we try to use the less judgmental word, why don't you, your opinion, into a comment and put it on our comments page. And you know, often the person doesn't do that. It, you know, in other words, they've made their point. I don't answer the most outrageous uh, 
I don't, most outrageous attacks. Now, now it is sort of social media, but more than anything else. But, but I, but I do, you know, I, I read them and I, I check myself against them. And, you know, we, we, Dulcie and I had spent years at the Times. And so we know what the rules are in terms of attributing things and uh, double checking things and linking things. So we don't have that much of a problem. And that's, I think that's because of our years of, of working with editors at the Times and knowing what is right and what's not. And what, you know, it, and then of course you could, you could get a lawyer, but who wants to do that? It's not worth it usually. Usually these people's attacks are coming from a very, a very deeply uh, held belief or a thought that they just don't want anyone else to contradict. So I, I guess my short answer is I ignore most of them. I, I read them. I ignore most of them. But we do write to them and say, this is past blue now. We, we do write. It's different with the Times and letters to the editor. That's a whole different system because they do have lawyers and others who can read them to, you know, to look for, and experts who can read them to look for genuine mistakes. But no, we just, we just follow the Times rules. And, and so we don't have many problems. It's sometimes outbursts, but not corrections. You have more than 50 years of experience to draw upon, and we turn things over to Emmy Lederman, soon-to-be graduating student at College of New Jersey, a future journalist, already a current journalist, and working, helping us out on this podcast. Emmy has some questions for the advice portion of our program. So what challenges did you run into as a woman in the early part of your career, and how would you contrast that with what you see today? That's a very good question, because I've been through phases I, I started on daily newspapers in England, and the editor I was speaking with Mark about earlier, David Hopkinson at the Birmingham Post, that's in Birmingham, England, which is in the Midlands, and has a lot of Asian population. It was a very chauvinist society, England was, but, but they were less so, they, there was less misogyny in England than there is in this country still to this day. And Hopkinson gave me all kinds of opportunities. I mean, one year I was covering Paris fashion shows, the next year I was in Israel and all that stuff. And it was never a question of my being a woman to, to, to be given any assignment. When I got to the Times, I found a very disturbing thing, which is there was a sort of network that didn't want to accept the judgment of women. I mean, you, they, they could fill up slots and say, we have you know 8%, whatever, foreign correspondents. But when, you, when it came to things like a possible conflict war in a place like Pakistan and India, I, I frequently got what we, used, what we call in the journalism profession, big-footed by somebody who wants to come out from Washington who thinks he knows more about the place than I do. And I, I had this problem. And also because as a, as a woman, I had decided in places like Pakistan and elsewhere in, in Islamic countries I could stay with women in the in the Purda parts of the houses, and I, or I could visit them in their homes, which a man couldn't do. Uh, I could see them in the markets. I could see what their children looked like. Did they have good teeth? Did they have shoes? And you know, get some sense of the society. My male colleagues, I'm sorry to say, were lined up outside the prime minister's office, hoping for you know, a fragment of news, but that. That didn't give me, that didn't make me a star. I was criticized by an American ambassador for covering the country from the bottom up. 
I, I thought that was, I was pleased to know that he knew that I had got around uh, the country and been in all these non, you know, non-important places, but it was a criticism. And to some degree, that was also the case with the Times. There were editors who had been foreign correspondents. In order to get anywhere up in the Times, you had to have been a foreign correspondent, the top-ranking people. That isn't the case now, but it was. So it's, it's the judgmental factor that most upset me, that, that for some reason, because I was a woman, I, I couldn't possibly understand what it meant that the French Communist Party had left the government of France. I mean... You know, it, it, that, that was extraordinary. And it was more American than it was European. And what has international reporting taught you about American media and its audience? Uh, international reporting is not popular unless the U.S. is involved, unless it's American troops overseas, unless it's a conflict in which the U.S. is trying to intervene diplomatically, or the conflicts where the U.S. is walking away from it when it's caused the trouble. It, it's a, it's a, the idea I always thought, and especially at the U.N., nobody was interested in the Security Council unless there was some sort of a flap going on that involved the United States. So it, isn't, it wasn't truly international news. It was foreign news, you know, on American themes and, or, or American presence. You know, the old jokes we used to say when a plane crash was, it's really sick humor, but how many Americans were on board? I mean, the idea was they were not going to be interested in the story unless, unless it, you could somehow connect it to the United States. You would have thought nowadays that with all the internet connection, and, and by the way, the non-government organizations, the NGOs are the best at this, what, what people used to call charities, because they are truly international and they do provide information from the ground up. They don't, they don't just get it from someone in the White House or the State Department or whatever. By the time I uh, retired from the Times as UN correspondent, it, it was, it, the other diplomat, diplomats were saying, why should we bother? They, the Americans get all the people into the office, they brief them, they brief them, then they come up to New York and they write this story ahead of time. We never get a chance to have our opinion included in this. It's, it's manipulated <clears throat> to take only American interests uh, at heart. So that's an ex- exaggeration, I think. There, there, there are other ways around that. And one of them is to get to know other diplomats in the UN in, in, in any case. Madeleine Albright, just a, a side thing. Madeleine Albright, when she was an ambassador at the UN and I was there, she said once, she told me once that the secret is when you go into a room and you're the only woman there around a conference table and they open the discussion, be the first one to talk and set the agenda right away. Now, she had the courage to do that, but don't let them get control of the situation. They will never call on you. And if you do say something, the man will repeat it later on. Everyone will say, what a great night. What a great idea, Ted. So she, she at her elevated level in international affairs, we're still finding this problem. And but, yeah. what type of gaps in international reporting should young journalism students work to fill? Well, it, it, a lot of it depends on uh, one's background and interests and qualifications. Increasingly, to get to the larger media organizations, you have to a, a solid background. In other words, uh, I, the Times I know better because I was there for so long. People covering the Supreme Court were lawyers. People covering, Larry Altman covered the HIV. Uh, he's a doctor and has hospital privileges. Uh, you know, it's just like Sanjay Gupta now on CNN. 
a doctor who still has hospital privileges. He's a brain surgeon and he goes in and works in the hospital sometimes. And he's their authority on COVID-19. So it isn't just anymore to be, you know, wanting to be a journalist. It's wanting to write about something. And environmentalism has given a lot of young journalists things, things to write about and things to research. They expect now more researched articles. A lot of, we find over the years that young journalists often want to be journalists. They want to write, they want to write opinion. And they, and so they, they present themselves in that way. And so if an editor says, well, what, what are you particularly working on? <clears throat> the person with the most chance of getting a job or even being heard is someone who can say, well, for the last two years, I've, I've been studying, oh, I don't know, I made a ridiculous thing, but, you know, like the migration of some kind of bird or animal or whatever, you know, if it's environment and, and so on through, throughout the, you know, the various acts, but always looking for something that takes you beyond what everybody else has written about. That's, that's the main thing. And that's not easy, you know, and, and also it used to be in the United States, certainly, that there was a, there was a stepladder. You did the local news, you know, the, the, the local uh, planning board or something about whether they should have a stoplight at some corner. And then from there, you move maybe to the mayor's office or maybe the governor of the state. And then there may be then the senators or the representatives in Washington, maybe some Congress work. And then, then if you had accumulated all that, you went, you went for a bigger media organization. So that that is less so now. Over the years, I've found that, as I said, the Times preferred people who came in with qualifications, academic or otherwise, but also, but also work in that field. You know, there are all these good uh, ways to do this. One of them is the United Nations has a volunteer program, which is a lot like the Peace Corps. And, you, you know, if you, if you want to you go to medical school, you take a gap year, and you go and you work in a refugee camp with people who come in with, you know, shattered bones or whatever. It, it you know, it, it's the idea that you've not just got a degree, but that you've actually been there and you've seen these things and you can write about them and then know how to research them. I, I don't know that that's any use, but, but increasingly, as I guess I'm trying to say is they like to know what it is you know and and what it is you can contribute. And it could be in, it could be in a lot of different fields. I, I think, I guess the point is just a journalism degree now doesn't mean as much as it used to. That's not good news, but, but it's the way it is. To close, I found an interview you did with the legendary writer, producer, and director George Abbott in 1978. For those who don't know him, he directed the original Chicago and Damn Yankees, two favorites of my family, uh, won 10 Tonys and an Oscar, and lived to 107. And he wrote, George Abbott couldn't stop working if he wanted to. Quote, I had a project for so many years of my life, it's a habit, the 91-year-old writer and director said. With that in mind, what keeps you going as a reporter at uh, H82? Well, you know, being a journalist, being a freelance journalist, or being a writer of any kind is, is, a, is a privilege and it's an exceptionally good place to be. Because writing, you know, you're not, you're not running a, an office in a corporation, you're not doing anything from, you know, from, from one area of public life to another. It's a, it's a, it can be a very lonely occupation, but it's a, it's a separate life. And, and so you can make of it what you want. And some people 
actually turn to fiction. I know a number of journalists who have turned to fiction. Others who have recapped, I always said, I will never write about the UN again. I mean, that is to say as a memoir. And, and so, so journalists have the great opportunity and privilege to, to continue working as long as your mental capacity is okay. You know, even, even if you're in a wheelchair or whatever. I, I find that to be the case. George Cannon, the very famous American uh, diplomat who, <clears throat> who lived to be, I think, 100 or close to it. When I went, I went to see him at Princeton, he, he was still driving to the office every day. I mean, it's a little scary. And someone there who knew him said he was, uh, I, I interviewed him as a back, background notes for his obituary. When I, in fact, when I went to meet him in New York at the Explorers Club or somewhere, I don't remember where, he took one look at me and he said, are you writing my obituary? Oh, I thought, I feel he felt awful. <laughs> but that's what you had to do. Yeah, and, and he, he it was wonderful. He, he wrote about the, ch- he was, he was, sort of the age of my father, and he wrote about the change in life in America when small towns, it was called Round the Crooked Hill. I mean, he was a, he was a class A diplomat who made Soviet American policy. That's how important he was. And yet he was writing about his small town in Pennsylvania, I think, that used to have a train station. It used to have a little opera house. It used to have a little this end of that, and how America now is come is complete gone, had completely gone, and it had nothing to do with his diplomatic career, but he just took time and did that, and it's a lovely little book. I recommend it. Around the Crooked Hill. That was some years ago now, and he died, he's dead. Can can I recommend? All right. So can I? Well, we're talking recommendations. Last question to close the interview: Is there another journalism organization not affiliated with Past Blue that you, in particular, would like to salute and give uh, credit to, props to? Uh, well, there I say the Washington Post. I think their opinion pages have become extremely good, and their editorials are right on the mark. I think they have grown. They're in Washington. I mean, you know, the, the Times learned its lesson with the Pentagon Papers. They, the Washington Post beat the Times on various things here and there over the years, but it was because they were there. I mean, they were seeing these people. They were neighbors. And the Times had, the Times is a multifaceted thing. It's in the theater district, it's in the financial district, it's everything in, in New York. It's the diplomatic capital of the world for, because of the UN. And, you know, so, so it, it's a different, but I, I but I think, <clears throat> and I guess I, I think this because we've had such a tumultuous four years in politics. Yep. And I, they've been very focused and very clear headed. And I think more courageous than the times. Our guest on episode 21, Aralise Hernandez, uh, who covers uh, Texas and the Mexican border uh, from the Washington Post. I will be glad to hear that you said that you gave them uh, such credit. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Barbara Crosette certainly got a comprehensive history on your career, and we appreciate uh, what you shared with us about Pass Blue. Thank you. And it's passblue.com, and it's free, so check it out. Emmy and I will just wrap up. We want, we want to open the reporter's notebook, talk about one or two things uh, that we heard from Barbara Crossett. Emmy, what was your biggest takeaway? So we asked her how she's noticed opportunities change and perception, the perception of women in journalism change over the years throughout her long career. And something that really stuck with me was when she talked about how it was expected that she 
would be covering the country from quote unquote the bottom up, talking to people in grocery stores, talking to people you know, outside of the government realm that may not be well known, but they have stories to tell nonetheless. And she was criticized by her male colleagues for adapting this approach. And she also talked a lot about the New York Times or other organizations were adamant about meeting quotas, adamant about saying a certain percent of their staff was female. But at the end of the day, when it came to editorial decisions, her opinion and the opinion of her female colleagues weren't really taken into account. And I think that I, one thing I really admire about her is that she, she took that in her stride and she was determined to prove people wrong and show people that her editorial style was just as effective, if not more than, you know, what her male colleagues might've been doing. Certainly, uh, certainly true in her case. Past Blue's highly regarded public service journalism holds the powerful people and 193 member countries at the UN to account by providing original news reports, analyses, scoops, and investigations each week to thousands of subscribers. The public needs in-depth reporting more than ever to engage in civil discourse and take civil action when needed. There is no greater mission in our world today. The name Pass Blue is a play on the diplomatic passport known as Laissez-Passe, Let's Pass, a blue travel document used by UN officials on missions and issued by national governments and world institutions during wartime and other periods to allow officers to travel to specific areas. The UN grounds passes are also blue. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. March is Women's History Month, and the Journalism Salute would like to pay tribute to Betsy Wade, the first female copy editor at the New York Times, who died this December at age 91. She led a 1974 class action lawsuit against the Times, which had a history of boxing women into the four Fs of reporting, which were food, fashion, family, and furnishings. But Wade was only interested in hard news, and before the trial began, the case was settled, and she was finally given her seat at the National Copy Desk, where she eventually was honored with a Pulitzer Prize for her work in the paper's publication of the Pentagon Papers. She also worked tirelessly to incorporate the prefix Miss into the New York Times style, as she strongly believed that the marital status of her sources did not need to be anyone's business. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. He, he worked very blue. Let's say he was notorious for it. He was notorious for the cursing. But I mean, I, it's probably a pretty good way to get a bunch of 18, 19 year olds to pay attention to you if they never know what you're going to say next. Marlena Cockroft, who graduated in 1996, also remembers Cole for his unconventional teaching style that prioritized field work over lectures, which she thinks explains his high success rate in landing students' jobs after college. It wasn't just he was standing there in front of the room and talk to us, this is how you do this, this is how you do this. He'd, he'd set up press conferences with police officers 
to give us the experience of being in a press conference. Cole would take students on what he dubbed toxic tours, where they would practice environmental journalism by evaluating toxic waste sites in Trenton. Marlena also mimicked what we've heard from other TCNJ graduates that, on top of being a memorable teacher, he was also a role model who would drop anything to help his students. He genuinely cared about his students. There was always this lineup after class. People wanted to talk to him. You could call him at home. You could visit him in, in Yardley. It was, it, it was, you know, he just had that relationship with everybody. I'm Emmy Lederman, College of New Jersey, Class of 2021. One other note, Past Blue has a podcast of its own. It's called UN Scripted, a play on the word unscripted. It takes you inside the UN and looks at where the real work is being done. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.